When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, everybody. Dylan here. So it is, of course, Black History Month this February, as it always is in February. And so we thought we wanted to share a couple stories of Black history that you might not have heard before. And to share them, we are going to get joined by our Places editors at Atlas Obscura, Michelle Cassidy and Jonathan Carey. The first story comes from Jonathan, and it's all about the history behind a specific section of the Atlantic City Boardwalk, which was once a summer getaway destination for the Black community. Okay, Jonathan, take it away. Welcome, welcome one, welcome all to the Atlantic City Boardwalk in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Known for its gastronomical offerings, stores with the latest beachwear and amusement rides, the Boardwalk is the perfect place to spend a summer day. But it's much more than a place to hang out and scarf down hot dogs or peruse skimboards. The Boardwalk is also home to a rich history. For starters, Did you know the Atlantic City Boardwalk was first constructed in 1870, making it well over 160 years old? It also happens to be the oldest boardwalk in the United States. Some think it may be even the oldest in the world. A museum on the boardwalk itself is home to many artifacts and mementos, but not far away is a much less noticeable but just a significant marker of this area's history. To get there, head down Missouri Avenue until you reach another inconspicuous boardwalk that winds its way out to a small sliver of beach near the pier. Attached to the railings is a sign complete with a few black and white photos. The images look as though they were taken during the mid-20th century. Everyone in the photos is dressed in swimwear of the era. Some of the people are striking poses and kids smile ear to ear at having their picture taken. Now, two things are very obvious in these historical photos. Everyone is clearly having a great time. And everyone is also black. This was Chicken Bone Beach. You see, this section of beach was once the premier summer getaway for black Americans on the East Coast. 
For a little more than half of the 20th century, it was designated as a segregated section of beach only for black Americans. The beach got its name because visitors often brought their own food to the beach because restaurants would not serve black people. Ironically, this segregation and leisure wasn't baked into the boardwalk's history. Before Atlantic City became a tourist destination, black and white beachgoers actually enjoyed the summer breeze together for around 80 years. It wasn't until hotels began servicing more white guests from the Deep South and the growth of Atlantic City's black population that things began to change. This prompted many hotel owners to meet with local black leaders and according to a 1931 letter about the beaches, an Atlantic City official stated, it was for the best interest of everyone concerned that black patrons visit another section of the beach. That spot eventually became Chicken Bone Beach. Now, despite this turn of events, the beach became one, if not the premier location along the boardwalk. And by the 1940s, it was one of the most popular destinations for black Americans vacationing on the East Coast. I mean, on any given day, you could run into one of several iconic black figures of the area enjoying a day at the beach. Artists such as Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Jordan, and the Miles Brothers often performed evening concerts for beachgoers. Legendary boxer Sugar Ray Robinson and even Martin Luther King Jr. visited the beach. You see, Chicken Bone Beach was much more than a happening spot during the summer. It was also a safe space, not only for blacks living in New Jersey, but the entire country. A family first destination that catered to the black community. This remained the case until the 1964 Civil Rights Act ended the days of Jim Crow. The beach then became just another part of the shoreline. As other attractions made their way onto the boardwalk, the history of this black enclave almost faded into obscurity. It wasn't until 1997 that an ordinance was passed by the Atlantic City Council that deemed the location a historical landmark. And while this section of beach may seem like any other along the shoreline today, during the summer, the Chicken Bone Beach Historical Foundation brings the legacy of the beach back to life. On any given summer night, a jazz performance can be front and center near the beach, reigniting the vibes that were once a staple at Chicken Bone Beach. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, up next is Michelle Cassidy. And Michelle has the story of both a place and a person. The place is the Field Museum, this incredible natural history museum in Chicago. And the person is Carl Cotton, the first black taxidermist to ever work in a museum in Chicago. And someone whose incredible work still infuses the Field Museum with wonder to this day. Michelle, Do you ever wonder who makes the taxidermy displays at natural history museums? All those dimly lit halls where you can see a family of bears traversing a rocky mountain pass, a couple of scarlet ibises picking their way across a tropical beach, or a walrus sitting on a huge chunk of ice. All of these disparate environments in the same place. I've always found these dioramas kind of magical, and I know that I'm not the only one. 
they're these snapshots into worlds that most of us will never get to see in person, sort of a low-tech version of virtual reality. The people who create these scenes are artists, but unlike a lot of paintings and sculptures, it's pretty rare that you'll find their names on a museum display. Today, I want to talk about one taxidermist in particular. His name is Carl Cotton, and he was the first Black taxidermist to work at the Field Museum in Chicago. It's one of the largest natural history museums in the world. And for the 25 years that he worked there, Carl helped immortalize many of the animals that are currently on display. Thousands of people see his work every single day. But until just a few years ago, not that many people knew his name. Back in 2019, the Field Museum decided they wanted to have an official celebration of Black History Month. They had never done it before. They started digging into their own archives, looking for things that they could tell stories about. A coordinator came across a photo in the museum's 125th anniversary book. In the picture, a young Black man in a white t-shirt is kneeling in the middle of an unfinished diorama. He's painting part of the display and surrounded by tall marsh grasses and long-legged birds. She did a double-take, surprised to see a Black man working in that role at that time. The picture had been taken in the early 1950s, when most of America was still experiencing some form of racial segregation. In the years before that, Chicago's Black population had grown rapidly, with many fleeing violence and discrimination in the South. But the city didn't exactly welcome them with open arms. Restrictive housing practices made Chicago one of the most segregated cities in the country, and many businesses refused to hire Black workers. The coordinator brought the photo to exhibition developer Tori Lee, who said that as soon as she saw it, she wanted to know more. But all she had to go on was his name and a rough idea of when he worked at the museum. Lee started gathering all the information that she could. She asked museum archivists to pull Carl's records and started scouring Ancestry.com and old obituaries for any trace of him. The museum's social media team put out a call looking for anyone who had known Carl or had stories about him. Within a few months, a portrait of his life had started to take shape. Carl was born in 1918. He grew up in Washington Park on the south side of Chicago and took up taxidermy at a young age. He practiced on squirrels, birds, and sometimes dearly departed pets. One childhood friend joked that cats and rats ran away when they saw Carl. In 1940, when he was 22 years old, Carl sent a letter to the Field Museum asking if they were accepting applicants to work in taxidermy. He mentioned his interest in zoology and noted that he had once kept a collection of 30 snakes, both venomous and non-venomous. The museum director wrote back, politely turning him down. They didn't have any vacancies, he said. And besides, research scientists typically held advanced degrees or had made a name for themselves in the world of taxidermy. Many of the people building animal displays at museums held degrees in zoology or had completed apprenticeships. Carl had neither. But he didn't let that deter him. After a stint in the Navy during World War II, he sent another letter. Dear Colonel Gregg, I'm seeking permission as to whether I can receive instruction in museum methods and procedures in taxidermy and in the technique of celluloid reproductions of fish and reptiles. 
For years, taxidermy has been my main interest and hobby, and my ambition is to open a shop specializing in big game and display work. Not doing just average taxidermy, but turning out work comparable to that of Carl Akeley, Leon Prey, Leon Walters, and other artists. This will require a certain know-how that I can acquire only through the experience and exactness of museum training. This time, it worked. He landed a part-time job in the vertebrae anatomy division, where he was tasked with cleaning skeletons and preparing skins. That's grunt work for a taxidermist, but within a month, he was offered a full-time job. Now, most taxidermists specialize in one class of animals, but Carl had versatility. For a long time, he focused on birds, but he also prepared mammals and reptiles, insects and fish, all for display. That last one is notable. Fish are notoriously difficult subjects for taxidermy, since their skin and scales tend to lose color as they dry out. Making a realistic specimen means painstakingly painting every part of the fish and capturing all the tiny, subtle variations that they have when they're alive. Carl's talent led him to rise quickly through the ranks at the Field Museum. He repaired some of the larger mammals that had been taxidermied by Carl Akeley, a man who's widely considered the father of modern taxidermy. Working with other museum staff, Carl helped develop new techniques, like using cellulose, a type of plastic, to capture the subtle variations in color and texture that often faded from animal skins. He had a gift for making his pieces look truly alive, rather than stiffly posed. Carl's best-known work is Marsh Birds of the Upper Nile. It's what he was working on in the photo that inspired Tori Lee to start looking into his story. In photos from the Field Museum's archives, you can see Carl working on nearly every element of this diorama. In one clip, he's sculpting wax lily pads and painting the delicate flowers that sit on top of them. In another, he's arranging tall papyrus on the edges of the diorama. And of course, in many of them, he's preparing birds. The diorama depicts a scene from a wetland on the edge of Uganda's Lake Kyoga. There are two crown cranes standing alert while a third bends down, picking a bug out of the mud below. On the edge of the reeds, a painted snipe stretches its wings, preparing to take flight. Right up front, a tiny, long-toed plover steps across one of the lily pads, with a little fluffy fledgling following closely behind. A shoebill stork peers out over its large beak, like it's glaring at something beyond the diorama's edge. There are 31 birds in this diorama, all prepared by Carl. Throughout his career at the field, Carl also continued practicing taxidermy at home. He built out part of the garage at his home as a personal lab, and his grandchildren remembered that his freezer was always full of animals waiting to be preserved and stuffed. Taxidermy was a constant in his life, up until his death in 1971. A year after Tori Lee first saw the photo that started this project, the Field Museum put on an exhibition dedicated to Carl Cotton as part of their first official observance of Black History Month. That exhibit has since closed, but you can still see tons of Carl's work throughout the museum. Marshbirds of the Upper Nile has a permanent display in the Bird Habitats Hall, and as you look through some of the other animal specimens throughout the museum, you'll find that many of them bear his name on their labels. 
It's one small way that ensures that his legacy will continue to live on. Thanks to Michelle Cassidy and Jonathan Carey for these wonderful stories. There are two examples of the many, many, many stories found in Atlas Obscura, and many of them uh, overseen by Jonathan or Michelle. If you're curious to visit one of these places or want to learn more about them, uh, you can visit our website, atlasobscura.com, and you can also check out the tens of thousands of other places there with equally great stories. You can find a link in our show notes, and I will see you next time. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney, Johanna Mayer. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Manolo Morales and mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.